Welcome to the Hanover Valley Podcast, a ministry of Hanover Valley Presbyterian Church. We are located at 133 Carlisle Street in downtown Hanover, Pennsylvania. Check out the rest of our website at hanovervalley.org. Thank you for listening. That's the, in a, in a nutshell song, that's the essence of our sermon series we're in, that God has uh, given us a, a storybook of countless stories of how he rescues us to give us the impression, not just the impression, but the reality again and again and again and again that he rescues. He's always rescuing, and we're always getting in trouble. We're always in need of rescue. We're always falling in the pit. We're always shooting ourselves in the foot. We're always, you know, creating some level of unease, some, some brokenness in our lives, and he's always rescuing. That's the kind of, and, he's, and he hears the, the voices under our breath as that we pray, the, the words that we say. He hears those things that no one else hears, and he sends the army that cannot be stopped to get us and to rescue us, and these, that's what the gospel is. So turn, if you will, we're going to look at another one of these experiences in uh, 1 Samuel. We've come, through, we've come through Judges. We're just sort of hitting some high spots, hitting some moments, maybe some things that aren't quite as evident uh, that you might not have uh, touched upon. Um, you know, we looked at the Judges and how the people, is, it's, a book, it's a book about how God continues to rescue as the people continue to do everything wrong. <laughs> um, and now he's put, how he's not put off by their continual dysfunction and uh, rescues again and again through the Judges, through these uh, many rescues of, uh, with men and women that he rose up, raised up in order to provide um, salvation, provide hope in the midst of dark days. And, you know, the, the sad thing is, is that, uh, is that the book of Judges doesn't, you know, it, it ends well. Again, it, 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 they, they are rescued again and again, but it says in the end of the book of, end of, the book of Judges that uh, the people went back and did what was right in their own eyes. They continued to to go back into their old patterns again and again, which means that this cycle of rescue that God is producing um, uh, in their lives is not, is not having a, a, there's no staying power to it. What, what I mean by that is that when, when there's a human rescuer to their human struggle, um, uh, when you have broken rescuers rescuing broken people, it never really sticks. It doesn't have ongoing perpetual power. And one of the things we learn through the course of, of biblical history, even the course of our lives, is that whenever you try to provide a human fix to a human problem, it never, it never stays fixed. But what that was meant to create in the lives of God's people then and God's people now is a longing for a perpetual fix to a perpetual problem, and that's what the cross gives us. And so we look at this in Samuel, uh, in, the, in, in, the, in, the, in the book of Samuel, in the life of a young woman uh, named Hannah. Let's look at her story a little bit. Verse 1 of chapter 1 in uh, Samuel. Follow along. There was a certain man from uh, Ramatham, a Jew fight, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Juf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up 
from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of his meat to his wife, Peninnah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they finished eating and drinking at Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the chair by the doorpost at the Lord's temple. In, in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow, saying, O Lord, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her mouth and her lips were, were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked for of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then they went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, be with us this morning as we study your word. Give us insight into your truth. Lord, let it not simply, not, not simply be intellectual, an intellectual experience, but let it be uh, experiential. Let it be something that is, that is deeply spiritually engaging to us and, and transformative in our experience with you and uh, that you might use us and guide us in this world that we live in, the culture around us and the people that, uh, where you've placed us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, one of the questions that counselors often ask when you, if you, I don't know if any of you have ever been to a psychologist or a, or a counselor in any way, one of the questions in the early stages of that process that um, counselors often ask, uh, professional counselors, is what's your earliest memory? Um, 
And the reason they ask that question, one of the reasons, and I'm not a professional counselor, so a lot of this is, is due to sort of, you know, um, third-party study. It's my, it's my you know, uh, it's helpful training for me in, in the process. But one of the things that, one of the reasons that they ask that question is that they're trying to get a sense of what are the formative principles, the foundational ideas, the, 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 the anchoring experiences that, 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 that have guided us in our formative moments. And often you'll find in psychology, often you'll find in some of the statistics that the most formative, uh, the earliest memories, and I wonder if you could ask that, you know, a- answer that question in your own mind this morning, what's your earliest memory? Often those earliest memories are very telling. They're very telling, and sometimes you need psychology to get to, to understand what it's telling you, uh, or even uh, spiritual counseling to understand what it's telling you. But often your earliest memories are about, um, are about ways that you've been hurt. Places, places where your heart's been broken. Maybe it's a nickname that you remember first, that the first thing was being told, told that you, something that your parents or that your family uh, did that was, that was uh, particularly... Uh, particularly um, uh, hard. Um, in, your own, in your own experience, maybe it's a, it's a phrase that was used that, was, uh, that, uh, that, you, that you remember growing up that was particularly sort of troubling to hear. Um, often our earliest memories are not of those great glorious moments. They're the places where the heart is broken. Do you remember the first time you broke that your heart was broken? Um, often broken hearts, we think of broken hearts, uh, the, the experience of having your heart broken in terms of romance. I remember in sixth grade, I gave a, I gave a Valentine card to Shelly Deagle. She was the prettiest girl in the class, and I liked her a ton. And I kind of was going with her for a little while, as they said in, in middle school, going with Meant we were sort of. It's, I guess that's the equivalent. That, that's the adolescent equivalent of going steady, uh, if that's even an experience anymore. But I remember that, and she, she. I remember her. You know, we were chatting back, you know, not chatting back and forth, but chatting amongst our friends on Valentine's Day in school when you're giving out the Valentine. I gave her a big Valentine, not a small one. You probably heard me tell that story. Um, and she. Uh, um, and in the midst of it, I was uncertain about her love for me, and she was, un- I don't know, uncertain or, or, or frustrated by my, my uncertainty about her love. And I re- you know, remember that I had sort of uh, uh, scratched out her name on her valentine just in a spiteful fashion, and she ripped my card up, threw it away. My heart was, she ripped up my heart at the same time. Of course, I probably did that when I scratched her name out. It was, and I don't really know all the details about it. It's not my first formative memory either. Um, but it's, it's a reflection of brokenheartedness. And my brokenheartedness, my sense of unease about whether she liked me or not, um, it, led me to, it led me in that to, to a vindictive bitterness as a sixth grader. In this experience with Hannah, she's brokenhearted. And the first thing I think that I that I think we need to notice about her experience is that she's brokenhearted because she has no child, and really she should be brokenhearted. Brokenheartedness is not. There's nothing 
wrong with being brokenhearted. There's, there's nothing, there's nothing. Um, and, and here's where it gets a little sticky, and you have to follow me as I say this. Brokenheartedness is, there's nothing, there's nothing inherently, there's nothing uh, practically, pragmatically sinful about being brokenhearted. Although, let me back up a minute, brokenheartedness, sadness, a sense of having my heart rended, is not, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing sinful in the local experience, in the momentary experience of that. However, brokenheartedness as a concept is rooted in sin. It's rooted in the original brokenness. When Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve broke culture, when they broke their lives, when they broke all that God had made in that original disobedience, in that original betrayal, it led to a lot, to the whole concept. How did brokenheartedness enter the world? How do we get that? Well, we got it from the beginning. But in, in momentary experiences, in localized experiences of brokenheartedness, there's nothing particularly wrong with them. As a matter of fact... As a matter of fact, if you're not brokenhearted about something that you ought to be, something's desperately, dangerously wrong. Penina in this story, there's something tragically, awfully, terribly wrong about her life. Every year, at the time of the high holy occasion of, of sacrifice, where you give, where you, where they were give, where they would give uh, sacrifice for their children and for their lives and for their sin, and they would have their their atonement. You know, this was this was a religious family. This was a God fearing family. This was a family of God's children. Elkanah and his family, all of his, you know, were were were. He was a, he was a pious man. He was a devoted man, and they would go to worship the Lord at great distance every year at the at the at the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and they would offer sacrifice for their families to atone for their sins and to receive forgiveness back. And at this high holy day, where gifts were given, and he and, and the tradition was that the, the, the tradition was is that you get you get gifts, you get you get part part of the sacrifice for you and your family and for your children. And so Elkanah's going home well fed and well supplied. I mean. Peninnah's going home well-fed and well-supplied and well-enjoyed. And, and meanwhile, every year she goes and she provokes, she irritates, she, she, she pokes into to, to Hannah's life, dismissing her need and rubbing her nose in the, in the joys that she has to the point of making her cry every year and if she's doing this when they go to work, worship when they when she if she if she's doing this when they're going to church how often do you think she's doing it on a regular basis her heart didn't break her heart didn't break for what should have broken it should have broken for her. it should have it, 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 it Hannah's heart there's nothing wrong with her crying nothing wrong with her desiring nothing wrong with her feeling brokenhearted about the fact that she can't have children and people we live in a world, you know, we live in a world where, uh, where people don't understand brokenheartedness. Um, it, it, is, it is rather un, unusual that we don't get brokenheartedness, given how easily the heart breaks. <laughs> Do you ever notice that? Have you noticed it in your own experience? Have you, have you lived a life? Of humanity, have you lived? Have you lived 
Have you noticed your own experience? Have you noticed the experience of others? How ever since the days of Adam and Eve, uh, when this bro when broken harness occurred, one of the chief things that happens with humans is our hearts are easily broken so quickly. They are so, our hearts are so fragile that it doesn't take much for my, for my sadness to rise up. It doesn't take much for me to feel ruined, to feel embarrassed and shameful, to, to feel as though I've lost. It doesn't take much. I, don't, I imagine it doesn't take much for you. Even I was a little brokenhearted yesterday um, in this way. It shows you how fragile the human condition is, not that... That, not that I'm particularly the chief example of it. I'm ordering something. I'm ordering a Christmas gift on on uh, Amazon. Of course, that's what we're doing now, right? And I found the perfect thing, you know, for for the person I was shopping for. And I go click, 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 out of stock. Oh, Ugh. And I'm like, and, I'm, and then I go searching for it again, and I'm trying to find it in some other way. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, there's got to be a way. Oh, nope, there wasn't any way. I'm going to keep checking. But you know how that goes. And this was just a Christmas gift that I'm going to give away. Uh, then my heart gets broken. Something I desperately, somebody I desperately wanted, something I desperately, and then and moments before, I didn't even know I needed it. Didn't even know I wanted it. And then suddenly, now I want it. Can't have it. My heart is broken. But we don't get brokenheartedness. Penina did not get brokenheartedness. Something was wrong. Her heart was so, do you get this? Her heart was so broken in a different fashion that it didn't break for others and probably didn't break for her own life in, in, the, in the proper way that it should have. Even Elkanah, comes to her in the midst of her brokenheartedness. She's not eating. She's being irritated, by, and, and her nose is being rubbed in her, in her loss her, the, and, and, in her, and in her want and the, the, the dissatisfaction of her want. And, and Penina is irritating her, ridiculing her, annoying her with this again and again and again, and she's not eating, and she's crying all the time. And... Elkanah comes to her. I, th I think, he, I think he's, he, he means well, right? Do you see him meaning well? What's wrong, Hannah? Why are you crying? Why aren't you eating? I mean, he means well, but then he says, aren't I more valuable to you than ten sons? He's trying to fix it. He's trying to say, you have me. You don't have a son, but you do have me. And and Elkanah, her husband, doesn't get it. He doesn't get broken harness. It's, you can't, if you don't have a child, you can't replace the child with something else. That loss is uniquely, is uniquely an experience of suffering, and it cannot be, it cannot be taken away it can, by simply replacing it. It's like when Job lost all of his sons and daughters. You know, there's a particular moment where he lost everything. Job lost everything. I mean, Job, Job lost, uh, lost his business, lost his status, lost his health, lost his family in a, tra in a tragic, in a tragic uh, hurricane. Uh, 
Everybody was lost. And in the end, God reverses his fortune. And you know, here's how it goes. In the, and this illustrates the point of you can't, you can't replace one thing with another um, when you're experiencing loss, is that in the end, God reverses his fortune, and it says that he gave him twice as much money, twice as much crops, twice as much land, twice as much animal, and all that his fortune was doubled and gave him extra children. He didn't give him twice as many children because you can't replace the children you lost. You can't replace the loss. You, you just extend. You just keep moving on. Elkanah says, aren't I worth more to you than ten sons? Can I make your broken heart better with me? And No. No. We, we don't like broken hearts. I don't like sadness. The world doesn't like sadness. Penina didn't like sadness. Obviously, she had potentially she'd trained her heart not to see or feel sadness. I don't know what Penina's issue is. Um, although I do know how it, you know the, hers was more intentionally trying to drive her to a sense of irritation. I don't know what I don't know where you get that. I don't know how that I don't know how you, you I don't know how your heart gets that broken where you need to agitate and irritate and confound the person's loss to the point of leading them to frustration, irritation, and tears. I don't know how you get to that place. I know that, I know that my heart is capable of that. I remember, I mean, the closest thing that comes to my mind as I was preparing this in, in my own mind that I'm, that I'm, that I'm uh, aware of, I was playing a game of Monopoly with my sisters years and years ago, this was like 25 years ago, playing a game of Monopoly. And I was so, uh, I have some skills when it comes to Monopoly. I have a certain negotiating style, a driving influence, a passionate pressure, as you might imagine. And I was plying those wares on my youngest sister, and it made her cry. And I think my response to it was, there's no crying in Monopoly. I know I'm capable of what Penina is exhibiting, but there's a sense where we, and I know, and the church is, is, is in some ways uniquely culpable in this area. The church. It's interesting, this is a pious family. There's a, there's a family of God. They're going to a church. This is all happening in church. As, it, as you might imagine, as, you, as, as the text says. It's happening at the, at the holy worship service on the Yom Kippur. This is happening in church where, where the, the loss, where the brokenheartedness of people in church is being irritated by the insensitivity of the other people in church because they fail to see the broken heart, because they fail to care for the broken heart, because they don't want to experience the broken heart. I think some of the problem with Penina, some of the struggle that we face as huma in humanity is we're so desperately broken, we're so desperately uneasy with brokenheartedness, we'll do anything but be brokenhearted, anything experience sadness. And that, I find this to be true if, if I was to make generalizations, and I try not to do that, but generally speaking, men hate being sad.
And it comes out in marriage counseling. It comes out in parental counseling. comes out in some of the psychology that, I, that I've studied. And, and, and the, what we do, in order not to be sad, we convert it into some other emotion that I'm better and easier with. And often what men do, what people do, when they don't want to be sad, they convert it into anger. Because sadness is weakness. Sadness is vulnerable. Sadness is soft and, and uneasy. Sadness is out of my control. Anger is the opposite of all those things. Anger is powerful. Anger is not vulnerable. I don't have to be exposed. Anger is not at the, at the, at the mercy of anybody else. Anger is my own power. I am in control. Bitterness, penina, anger, aggression. I don't want to feel sad. I don't want to be broken. Hearted, I, I will do anything but be brokenhearted. And the thing, the wonderful thing about Hannah, she lingers in her brokenheartedness and doesn't let it turn her into bitterness. It's, there's a sense where, there's a sense where, you see her just being sad. And then it leads her to prayerful surrender. She's in worship. She's crying. She can't eat. She's distraught by her oppression. She's distraught by her loss. And what does it lead her to? Prayer. Prayer. Brokenheartedness should lead us to prayer. Pray my heart. Pray my broken heart. And she did. She prayed her broken heart. She prayed it desperately so. She prayed it, you know, she prayed it. It's interesting the way it describes the way she prayed. Do you hear it? Do you see it? She's in worship. She's in worship, and she's praying, but she's not saying anything. She's moving her mouth, praying to God, the, the anguish of her heart, praying, but she's not saying, the words aren't coming out, but she's moving her mouth. Whispers underneath your breath. And when the priest saw it, he thought she was, she's obviously mumbling, she's drunk. <laughs> he was wrong. He was wrong. Even, even the priest, even, even, even the pastor of the church doesn't get it when he sees it. He can't distinguish brokenheartedness from drunkenness from anguish to crazy, from crazy. And, and Hannah can, helps, to, uh, him under, help, helps him to understand what's going on here. I'm, I, was, I was so anguished, I couldn't form the words. I'm mumbling my prayers. I, nothing's coming out. But what you saw was me pouring out my heart to God, the words under my breath, and he hears me. He hears those words. And Eli says, well, go in peace and pray that God will give you everything that you've asked for. And, it says, and then it says, it says there in verse, uh, in verse uh, 18, then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. What an amazing thing. She prays, and then she 
her, her situation changes. This, the way that we would expect this to go, the way that we kind of, the way that our prayers often go is this, in this order. This, uh, uh, Tim Keller says this, is that if you, uh, we expect the order to go prayer, pregnancy, peace. That's how we pray. That's how we live our lives. We, we live our lives, we pray for it, we get it, and then we're peaceful. And that's the way we go into prayer and that you might think that Hannah went into prayer with. She makes this sort of, if you give me this child, I'll give him back to you. You, you think that, that that kind of prayer, that kind of bargaining that's going on would, would result in, I pray for it, I get pregnant, and then I'm peaceful, wonderful. That's the way it ought to go. But that's not the way it goes in her story. That's not how we're told it went. It says she prayed, then she was peaceful. And then she got pregnant. She surrendered. How do we get to that place? How do we get to a place where my peace is not dependent on the answer to my prayers? That my peace and my sense of confidence, my sense of hope is not dependent on whether my heart, uh, what my heart most wants, whether it gets it. How do I, how do I unlock my heart? How do I untether my heart from the things that I want so that I can be at peace? Hannah lived in a day and age where a woman's identity, a woman's hope, a woman's sense of protection, a woman's sense of, uh, of vitality was based on whether she had children or not. And it's not that far away from where we are now. I mean, it's, it's maybe magnified then, but we're in a day and age. I mean, if you, don't, if you run into people who aren't having children, who don't, a woman who doesn't have children, you kind of, you kind of want to ask and what makes you want to ask is because we live in a culture where a woman's ability to have children is where they, she gets her sense of meaning, her, her, sense of, her sense of significance and beauty and intelligence and personality. And, and often the culture sets this, sets this driving expectation in the hearts of not just women, but men and children and all the rest, everybody, the culture we're in and our human hearts' desires set, a, a, set us into a, into a driving expectation that we have to live up to. I have to run fast, jump high, and look good doing it or something's wrong with me. And that cultural, innate sense drives us, drives us, and leads us to failed expectations, to, to loss, to a sense of not having the things that we need, and it's leading us to a life that lacks peace and joy and satisfaction and hope. And Hannah prays. I've wanted a child for so long. I've wanted to have this child for me. I've wanted to have an identity. I've wanted to have a position. I've wanted to not be thought of as a loser. I've wanted to be thought so desperately as someone who can contribute to my family. I want to take care of myself. I don't want to live in this sense of not having, of not being, of not, of not, and of no one caring. And children, and I know that children have been the, a child, especially a boy child, has, has anchored me to those expectations. And she said, 
I'm praying that you give me a child, but I'm going to give him back to you. She was untethering her soul from her own expectation, from her own goals and abilities, from her own sense, from her, from her culture's sense of expectation. She was, her heart was surrender. She was surrendering her heart, surrendering her goals, surrendering her ideas, her expectations, everything that she was and is and all of her value and identity. She was surrendering all that to God in her prayer. And my sense of peace is not going to be based on whether I get this thing. My sense of peace is going to start. I'm going to start with my peace because I'm going to un... I'm going to unshackle my soul from expectations that I create and that my culture creates around me. I'm unshackling myself from those things and I'm just going to put myself in the hands of God such that even if I do get a child, I'm going to surrender him back to him. He'll become a Nazarite. That's what she meant by the hair not being cut. The most famous Nazarite who is a religious sort of a, a priestly judge of sorts. Samson was a Nazarite, long hair. Surrendering our expectations and surrendering our ideas and surrendering our, our script. I talk about it in terms of the script that we're writing. Each of us has a script that we're writing about life in our own head. We don't know, we can't like, we can't like write it out. We could, I, I couldn't, if I asked you what it was, you couldn't like write it out like an actual script, but there's a script in your head and I, and, and I, and we know that we have a script as soon as when we say something, our spouse or our children or our boss don't say the thing that we are expecting them to say and they're off script. It leads us to great unease. And what Hannah's doing in her prayer is saying, I'm done with my script. I'm done I'm done trying to write a script for my life. I'm done trying to let culture write a script for me. That has led me to nothing but anguish. And when she said that to the Lord and said, I'm going to let, I'm going to, I'm not off, I'm not operating out of my script anymore. I'm operating out of your script. Everything changed. She could eat. She could, she was, her, her face and life was, was, was no longer downcast. And she could go back to life more powerfully, more positively, more engagingly. I'm sure Penina didn't stop. This create, she was in the habit of doing this. <laughs> but she could live buoyant in the midst of that oppression because it wasn't about Penina's script. It wasn't about Alcana's script. It wasn't about her own script. It wasn't about culture script. It was about God's script. And she said, Lord, remember me. That was her prayer. Lord, remember me. This is in verse uh, 11. O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son. She's praying her desires. Pray her desires. Pray them, but not attach yourself to them. Pray them, but surrender them. And she said, just remember me. And, the, and then in the, the wonderful thing, after, uh, after uh, Eli the priest had given her his blessing, she says she goes away. Um, early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord, and they went to their home um, in Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. We have a remembering Savior. Now, I don't know if that makes any sense. I don't know if that 
uh, excites you. Hannah believed that Hannah believed, and the reason she could be trusting is that she could say, I'm going to surrender my script, and I'm going to let my life be about your script, and I'm going to trust that you're going to remember me. Um, when, I, when, I, when Tyler, my son, was in uh, middle school, he played for the soccer team. Um, and Becky had told me that morning that she was going down, I think she was going down to Baltimore to be with her mom, and that the normal after-school run wasn't, you know, she could get the girls from school, but she couldn't get Tyler from school, so she said, pick up Tyler from school. Um, okay, I can do that. Okay, so I go about my day. And then, uh, and then I check my phone at one point at like 5.30. And, it's th- and soccer is sort of now in the time so- timeline. So it's 5 o'clock. It's darkish, 4.30. And I pick up my phone, and there's a, and, and, uh, there's a series of texts on the little notification and, the, and, the, and a phone message. So I pick it up, and obviously I hadn't checked my phone. I hadn't felt it or I hadn't gotten these messages. I pick up the phone, clicked on the message, and it's, it's Tyler. Dad? Now, it's surprising to hear his voice on the phone because Tyler didn't have a phone. Because this is in the day and age when you didn't get phones for, thir- for 12-year-olds or 13-year-olds. Dad, um, Mom said... I should call you. Okay, so now he's called mom before he called me. Mom said I should call you and say that you're supposed to pick me up at practice. I'm here. Practice ended 30 minutes ago, and I'm using the janitor's phone. You cannot know, and even as I tell you this story, I am, my, my heart is breaking. You cannot know the level of dread and the level of uh, the level of unease that came over me in that moment, and I quickly ran out. I had forgotten my son, and I had left him in the dark with a stranger to him. Safe stranger, seem, seemingly safe stranger, but I had left him unremembered by his father. His, his number one cheerleader, come to find out, not quite. Number one cheerleader was the person he called first. And that's always been true. I'd forgotten him. To be forgotten is a horrible thing. To be forgotten is lonely. To be forgotten is a, is a, is a, is a uh, letdown of immense proportion. To be forgotten... Is to, is to in, the, in a human context, to be forgotten is to realize in that moment that, what those, the, that the words that person had told you that you thought were true at the moment really weren't true. I love you. You're the most important thing in my life. I'll do anything for you. Everything about you is meaningful to me. If you ever need anything, don't forget to call me. 
These are phrases I had said to my children any number of times. And in that moment, in a simple forgetfulness of a soccer game pickup, of a soccer practice pickup, I was communicating, that, that, and he was feeling that sense of letdown and loss from the man who was his chief provider, chief securer, chief protector, chief everything. Now, again, this is me examining it in, in years. Now, again, um, um, I just forgot I'm in a soccer game. Everything's well. All is well with my family and my kids, and there's no problem. We're not, we're not, it's okay. But the underpinnings of everything I'm saying exist in that moment. To be forgotten. That's why Hannah was praying. Don't forget me, Lord. I'm doing this thing. I'm untethering my life from culture. I'm untethering my heart from its own expectations. I'm, I'm burning my script about how life should go. I'm, I'm giving up all, I'm surrendering all of this stuff. And if, I, and if you don't remember me, I am, I am I'm lost. I, I got, I, I, I'm doing all this. I'm burning my script. I'm giving up my stuff. I'm surrendering. I'm, I'm doing this. But, you, but, don't, but don't forget me. Joseph was in prison unjustly years ago in the, in the biblical story in Genesis. He was in prison because he had been, he had been framed having, having abused uh, his boss's wife. She framed him, sent him to prison. While he was in prison, he helped out a couple of guys who were also in prison to the point where they were, they were released. One of them was released. And before he was released, he said to Joseph, I'm going to, as soon as I get out of here, if this is true, what you've told me, I'm not going to forget you, boy. I got your back if, because you had my back. And it says when he got out and went in service to the king, it says he forgot Joseph. It's tragic to be forgotten. And Hannah surrenders her soul, surrenders her script to God in in the knowledge that he would not forget her. And indeed he didn't, and indeed he doesn't. But Hannah, Hannah did that. Hannah was able to surrender her heart to him so that her, the buoyancy of her peace could rise above the, above the sense of her brokenheartedness. She believed that God would reverse fortunes. She believed that God would remember her and lift up the humble and cast down the proud which is the essence of the gospel, and she did that without having any sense of certainty that God would be in the mind of doing it. I mean, she had a history of God always rescuing, of God always coming to the brokenhearted, of God always hearing, and so she was trusting in that. But you and I have something far more tangible than what she had, and she surrendered her soul to, to surrender her script and burned it in the sake of God, realizing that God would not forget her, you and I have the cross. The cross is God's promissory note. The cross is God's tangible act in history which says, I'm not going to forget you ever. I'll forget my son. I'll turn my back on my son, but I'll never turn it on you. I will never forget you. The resurrection proves that. The resurrection is God's, the resurrection is God's tangible Circumstantial evidence 
The reason that hurt, the reason that forgetting my son is so hurtful, the reason that when you are, when you are forgotten for, for a promotion or you're forgotten at a holiday or you're forgotten when it comes to someone remembering your birthday or when, it, when you're forgotten in a circumstantial experience, when you're, the reason when you're forgotten as a lover, you know, the reason that those things are so hurtful is because you, is because you realize that you are not the, you are not the central thought in that person's life. The reason that Tyler might have been hurt and pro- probably was a little and my wife was hurt is because the child, one of the children whom I prized desperately, slipped out of my thinking, slipped out of my heart, practically, circumstantially throughout the day to the point where I left him. The cross tells me and should tell you that you never slip out of the thought of Jesus any moment of any day. He says, I have placed you as a seal upon my heart. I have written you on the palms of my hands. <laughs> he is a Savior who never, you never leave his thinking. Every part of, he, 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 he says in Jeremiah, I rejoice over you with singing. I'm constantly singing songs about you. Not one moment, not one element of my life, every part of my life, every, Jesus, it's as if Jesus is saying, it's as if God the Father is saying to you and to me through these experiences and through the power of the cross, he's saying to you, not one moment, not one aspect, not one minute of my life passes that I don't think about you and wonder how can I make your world better? How can I come to you? How can I make, how can I contort history in order to make it fit with the best that I have in store for you. I will never forget you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will always come to you. I will always remember you. And the cross reminds us of that. And he comes and he provides for Penina. He provides for Hannah. That idea ought to inspire us to surrender our scripts to him. But keep in mind, just as it did here, Hannah was not, Hannah was not sort of mountaintop emotionally committed to this idea. She did understand it in the course of practicality. And the writer of Samuel tells us, Samuel tells us of the practicality. Did you notice the practicality? Did you notice that the power of all that I've said about how the cross is his promissory note, how it tells us the cross and the resurrection are God's proof, concrete proof that Hannah didn't have, but you and I do have, that God's every thought, every moment, his waking images are you and how he can come to you and not forget you and how he can provide for you and how he can make and contort all of that, but it does come in a practical package, the driving sense of Captivation, that that is, ought to lead us to faith and to trust and to surrender to the point where peace develops. But it does come in a practical package. Did you catch it? It's in verse 20. And the Lord, this is verse 19 says, and the Lord remembered her. And then in verse 20, that practical passage, just a little phrase, and so in the course of time, Oh, my gosh. God, why? (laughs) That's the practical package. All of this is true. But he, he remembers us 
Every waking moment of our Savior is us on his mind. Every waking, and he never slumbers or sleeps, so it's always waking moments. Every waking moment of the Savior is that he's thinking about you and how to make abundant your whole life, but he manifests that remembering in the course of time, in the natural outworking of life day by day. It says that Hannah went back home. She went about her business. She was with her husband. They did the things you're supposed to do to make these things happen. And we don't know how long it was from that day until, until verse 20 because it, he says in the course of time. And it is hard to live in the course of time. That's why he gave us a cross. So that you aren't tempted to trust your sense of circumstances, your sense of your emotional, spiritual well-being, or your sense of closeness to God, or a warm, fuzzy feeling that God won't forget you. But the cross tells you, you can live in the course of time, waiting for the Lord to answer and reverse your fortune the gospel is all about reversal of fortune. Sinners getting righteousness for no, for no apparent reason other than giving it to him, them. Lost becoming found. Humble becoming exalted. Broken becoming restored. All these reversals of fortune. This is the nature of the God who will not forget you. But the cross is him saying, I'm not going to forget you. And here's something tangible, concrete in history. Trust that in the course of days. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you do not forget us. Thank you that we can surrender our script, knowing full well that you desire to reverse our fortune of, of brokenheartedness. and that you will intervene in the course of time. Let it lead us to a great sense of poise in the moment. In the moment. Let it lead us to a lingering in, in broken sadness rather than letting it turn us into bitter, angry people that find our privilege through the downcasting of others. Let it lead us to patience and peace, anticipating that day when you will reverse the course of our experience, either now or in the days to come. But they're all the same to you, Father. Let them be all the same to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.